Hebrews chapter 10, and the sermon this morning will be on verses 14 to 18. Remember that the whole section of the past three sermons, the whole section is basically Hebrews 9 to Hebrews 10, verse 18. This is the fourth sermon on this section of scriptures. Let me read, starting at, again, chapter 10, and I'll start at verse 12. But he, that is Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after seeing This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there was no longer any offering for sin. Father, as we come now to your word, as we continue to worship you, Lord, We pray that you would give us eyes to see, hearts that are soft, minds that are focused on your word and focused on you. Lord, we trust your word that does its work and those who believe and faith comes to hearing, hearing the word of Christ. And so we pray that you would work powerfully through your word and to each of our hearts. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Do you like tree houses? Have you ever made a tree house? When I was growing up, we would make tree houses all the time. It was a common theme. We would either dig tunnels and make forts underground, which we got in trouble for many times by the firemen, or we would build tree houses secretly in the woods where the firemen or the police could not find us because we would seek to build really tall, high, elaborate tree houses. Many stories about tree houses that I could share with you. Some are quite surprising. However, in order to get material for the tree houses, we would go to construction sites. And usually, normally we would ask, usually, if we could have leftover wood and materials. All kinds of different types of wood, all kinds of things. But never did we ever build our treehouse with cardboard. We wouldn't think of building a treehouse with cardboard. Now, perhaps you could take, you know, ten layers of cardboard and make a floor or a wall, and it might work for a while. But in Florida, eventually it's going to come the hurricane season. It's like the monsoon season. From July to October, there can be actual hurricanes that come through Florida. Torrential downpours and thunderstorms. Even some tornadoes in Florida, actually. That cardboard, if you build a tree house with cardboard, it would get what? Soaked. Ruined. And if you sat on it or stood on it, what would happen? You would eventually, 
probably pretty quickly just tear right through it and probably fall to your death or, or at least break a leg depending upon how high your treehouse was. We would never in our mind did we ever think, you know what, there's a bunch of cardboard boxes in the garage. Let's build a treehouse out of cardboard. That we, we, we never attempted that because that would be, that'd be dumb. In a similar fashion, storms of life have come and are coming. Many of you are in storms of life, have been in storms of life, or will be in storms of life, or people that we know are in storms of life right now. And what do they and what do we build our faith upon? If we build it upon human philosophy, human invention, it's like building our faith on cardboard. Maybe for a brief time. You can even take spray paint and spray cardboard and make it look really shiny and really nice. Maybe even use gold spray paint. But eventually, when the storms of life come, it's not going to support your faith. It's not strong enough. In a very similar way, this passage is calling us to build our faith upon the blood work of Jesus Christ and not upon human invention. If we build our faith upon humanness, even if it looks shiny, even if it looks really pretty and nice, eventually it will cause us to forsake Christ when difficult times come. Rather, we want to build our faith upon that sure, solid, superior, efficient atonement of Jesus Christ so we don't forsake him, but go forward in faith to Christ. That's really what this passage is speaking of. That's why even in chapters 10, 19, all the way into chapter 11, it talks about faith. Chapter 10, verse 22, talks about faith. When chapter 10 ends, verse 38 and 39 talk about faith, and then all of chapter 11 is talking about faith. And Hebrews, basically, 9 to 10, 18, and even really the whole book of Hebrews before chapter 9 is saying, build your faith upon the superiority and supremacy of Jesus Christ, because he's not only better, he's the best there is. So build your faith upon him. And there's, at least in this passage, three building blocks that we've seen to build our faith on. Yes, we build it on the atone, that perfect atonement of Christ. What does that look like? How do we do that? Well, we said this. First of all, by glorifying in the atonement when you sin. And we saw that in chapter 9, 1, chapter 9, 1 through 14. That is, when we sin, we don't say, look at me, or... Lord, I promise now that I will never do that sin again. Though certainly we want to repent when we sin, how we build up our faith in him is we run to the cross. And we say, Lord, I have nothing to present to you. I I, I don't have the merit. I, I don't have the goodness in order to get you to forgive me. I can only claim the cross of Jesus Christ. That's my only merit, my only forgiveness. Much like David in Psalm 25, he said, Lord, forgive me, my sin is great, but forgive me for your namesake, for your glory, based upon the blood work of Jesus Christ. 
Second, we said that we build our faith upon this sure atonement of Jesus Christ by preparing ourselves for eternity, by preparing ourselves for judgment. You may remember Hebrews 9, 27, And as much as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation, without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. We prepare for future judgment with Christ, not by, again, looking at what we've done or will do or are doing, but rather by looking at what Christ already did, and even that he will return again for us. And our hope is not, I'm such a good person, I'm such a good Christian, I'm I'm better than my neighbors, I'm better than my kids, I'm better than my spouse, I'm better than this person. Rather, Christ is the best. Christ is better than me and he's the best there is. And so I trust in him, his life, his perfect life and satisfactory death and resurrection. That's my hope. That's how I get ready for eternity. It's not by measuring my life with other people, but rather by relying on the death of Jesus Christ. Then the third budding block we said, which we looked at two weeks ago, was trusting this sufficiency and this supremacy of Christ, both his person and both his work. And primarily, chapter 10, 1 through 13, not not exclusively, but primarily is really looking at his person. And then verses 14 through 18, not primarily and not exclusively, but primarily would be looking at his work. Now, we said about his his person and his work that he is the best representative there ever is, there ever was, there ever is, there ever will be. We see that in verse 11. Every priest stands daily, all the time, continually. Old Testament priests would always be offering sacrifices for others and for themselves. But on the other hand, Jesus Christ did that one time. You see that in verse 12, for sins for all time. And he sat down, meaning it's finished. His work was done. It didn't have to be repeated because it's the best work of atonement. Now, verse 13, we touched a little bit last week and we'll touch it again a little bit later in the sermon. But just to say now, if you look Here in this section, it's talking about the atonement of Christ, the death of Jesus, his sacrifice for sins. But yet, verse 13 talks about eschatology. Verse 28 talks about eschatology. So right when it's talking about the death of Christ, it brings up what? Eschatology, the end times. We'll talk a little bit later about why that is. But I want us to go to verse 14. And again, we're talking about this third building block. We, we relish, we realize, we relinquish, all that is faith. We acknowledge, we adore, we acquiesce to this supremacy and sufficiency of all that God is for us in Christ and Christ's atonement for our sin. That's what we're looking at. And now in verse 14, He's going to explain even and elaborate even more about this sufficient atonement. In verse 14, 
really is a, to use a very technical word, ginormous. Verse 14 is a very ginormous verse. There's so much truth in here. Verse 14 is an incredible verse. Let me just read it again. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. That's, in one sense, that's summarizing all that we've seen so far in the book of Hebrews. It's an incredible verse. So I want to say several things about verse 14. And that's this. First of all, this verse is assuming we have a problem. If you look at verse 14, it says he has perfected, meaning at one time we were not perfected. It also says for all time those who, who are sanctified. That means there was a time when we weren't sanctified and there was a time when we were not perfected. And that's because we had a problem with sin. Everybody is a sinner. Certainly unbelievers are sinners. Scripture says, for there's no one who is good, no, not even one. They all together have become ruined and corrupt. Romans 3, 10 through 12. But even as a believer, we know from 1 John and other places and the New Testament that we're sinners. If anybody says they have not sinned, they make God a what? 1 John says, a liar. So even as a believer, though I am a saint, I'm a sinning saint. I still sin. And so I still need Christ and his work. So there's a problem that man has. There's a problem that the believers have. Even as a believer, I still have those. Sin doesn't reign. Sin does what? It remains inside of me. So I still need Christ. Now second, as we're looking in verse 14... Note what it says in verse 14 when it says, For by one offering, this term one is emphatic. It's placed first in the Greek sentence. It's out of order. And the Greek would do that to often emphasize, draw attention to this word. If you wanted to read this with its emphasis, you could read it. For by one offering, he has perfected all those who are being sanctified. That would be a good translation. It's making this very emphatic. In context, of course, there were all these priests. They daily, yearly, monthly had to offer all these sacrifices and all the people would have to all the time go back and be offering their sacrifices. And be It was perpetual. It would be going on the entire time. But here, Christ, his person and his work was so powerful. The work, his work was so wonderful, it only had to happen one time. Just once. That's how marvelous his obedience was. How incredible his person was. Keep looking at verse 14. Talking about the the translation, the wording. For by one offering he has perfected for all time. You could even, when it says for all time, you could even translate that as Unto forever. There's a Greek word for time. Kronos. I think it's a few of them. That's not the word here. This is a totally different word. And it's the idea of perpetual. Or forever. There's even another word for forever. This isn't even that term. Here it's more of this idea of unto the perpetual forevers. It's a little bit stronger. 
for, for all time and time and time and time, there was only one sacrifice that Jesus had to make for your sin. It was so sufficient and so efficient. It would be from eternity unto eternities and even beyond. That is that the, the cross work of Jesus Christ so covered, so cleansed, so crushed the sin of all those that trust him. It only had to last one time and that would go for billions and billions and billions and billions and trillions and quadrillions of years and years. And then even after that, the satisfactory work of Jesus Christ would still keep going. There, there's no end to how powerful and satisfying it is. That's what verse 14 is saying. Because again, remember, in this context, these believers were being tempted. Their loved ones were being tossed in prison. They were having their own possessions robbed and stolen. And they were being persecuted and tempted to believe that I came and I trusted Jesus and my life hasn't gotten easier, it's gotten worse. And so why don't then I go back to the Old Testament Hebrew system, maybe because I left Judaism and I'm into Christianity, maybe that's why things got harder, and I need to go back and be daily daily offering sacrifices. And if I do that, then maybe I'll be right with God and things will get easier. Well, in this context, the Spirit of God is telling them that no, and the new covenant, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man, offered one sacrifice for all time that would take care of, of all of your sins forever. And so don't forsake Christ for something that is not as good, that is not perpetual, that's not unto forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. You'd be going for something that's really useless now. Now, he says something that is really interesting in verse 14. Keep looking at verse 14. And remember, again, what I just said about the context, these believers, and we'll look at it more as we go along in chapter 10 and verse 11, chapter 10 and chapter 11, there is this temptation. There, there has to be something else, perhaps, that I need to add to Christ. You see that in also the book of Colossians and Galatians. For me to have uh, peace and joy and happiness and success and, and improvement and safety, there has to be something besides just Jesus Christ. And here, verse 14, it says, For by one offering he has perfected. He has perfected. Do you know that if you're a believer that you have a perfect relationship with God? In a very true and real sense, if you are a believer, you have a perfect relationship with God. Look Again, look at verse 14. He has perfected. That is, God, through Christ, has perfected you. We have this saying that we say all the time, and we say, hey, like maybe if I sin against my wife or the family, what will I say to them? Look, nobody is what? Nobody is perfect. I got news for you. I'm perfect. From now on, I'm going to say that at, at my home. Um, I'll tell you how well it goes. I, I'm going to say to people, I'm perfect. That's what verse 14 says. He has perfected. 
Remember in Matthew, I think it's 548, Jesus is preaching and he says, you have to be as perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now often, and it's right to do this, often we'll use that in evangelism and we'll say, how you get to heaven is you have to be absolutely perfect. Are you perfect? And I've never, ever, ever, ever have met anybody say yes. I never have. Maybe you have. I've never met anybody to say yes. Because 99.9% of the people know, no, I, I, I'm not perfect. But that same Greek word is the Greek word used here. And this is a what's called a perfect active indicative. It means that a, a completed action has happened with abiding results. So this verse is saying, I am perfect. And I continue to be perfect unto this day. There is a true and real sense, of course, Matthew 5.48, true sense, which that is accurate. We're not as perfect as God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And the only way that we can get into heaven is to be perfect. Well then, what does this verse mean? Well, this verse here is saying, certainly I'm not perfect and good enough in my and my own self, we've already talked about that. I'm a sinner. I sin. I have to confess my sins daily. I, I still sin. But this verse is saying that God in the past, through that work of Jesus Christ, positionally gave me that righteousness of Christ so that in God's eyes, I am 100% what? Perfect. And that continues to this day. The way that God looks at me is through that perfection of Christ. And that perfection of Christ, he achieved by his 100% obedient life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So the way that God the Father treats every believer is through the perfection of Christ. This is why you see in some places like in Ephesians, it talks about praying, or I think even in Hebrews 4, about praying with confidence. We can pray with confidence. Not because I'm such a great prayer warrior. Not because I had a hundred quiet times this week. But rather, I go through the person of Jesus. I go through His perfection, His righteousness, His obedience that He's given unto me. In that sense, I have been made perfect. You know, when you are in love with your significant other, and especially at first, everything about them is what? Perfect. Absolutely perfect. You see no flaws. They are just amazing. They are perfect. The way that God sees us is 100% perfect. But it's not because he has on some kind of stained glass window, but rather he sees us through the blood work of who? Of Christ. So he's not wearing like some kind of stained glass window with paint or cardboard, but rather he sees us through the blood stain of Jesus Christ. In that sense then we are perfected. That's our position. That's how I relate to God the Father. That's why 
there's not a moment in time or a day where if I feel that I need to pray or talk to God about something that I I feel guilty, so I have to stop and, and I can't do it. And, and maybe I have to do some kind of work. You know, I have to have more quiet times. I have to evangelize more. I, I have to be me, more obedient in, a life, in my life before I, I pray. No. If I'm in Christ, if I've trusted Jesus... Because of the perfection of Christ that he has given to me, I can go straight to the Father and say, Daddy, Dad, Galatians 4, Romans 8, Father, help me in this area. I need you today. And this is not done. This is the message that's being given to these Hebrew Christians. This is not being done by a Hebrew priest that continues to offer sacrifices over and over and over and over and over again. This type of Consciousness, clean consciousness, is what happens through that one sacrifice that Christ made. We trust Him and we are perfected. Now, the Spirit of God is the best shepherd there is, because if you keep looking at verse 14, He says, For by one offering, by one offering, one time, He has made and that continues to this day, perfected for unto forever and forever all those who are being sanctified. If you look at verse 14 and you have a new American standard, it says, not being sanctified, but it says, who are sanctified. If you look in your margin and you have a new American standard, probably then in your margin for that Word it will say, or being sanctified. When it says perfected, and look at verse 14, when it says perfected, that's perfect active indicative. What that means is a completed, once and for all, completed action, and you're experiencing the results of that. This here is different. It's not a perfect. Those who are this here is more of the idea of this, those who are being set apart by God. That's more of the idea. It's more of this action that is continuously happening. Yes, there was a an action that happened once. Right? We are Saints, there is a type of positional sanctification that does happen, and that's even with this idea of perfected. But here at the end, it's also this idea that our perfection, that is, that God in Christ has given me his righteousness, is at least to some degree worked out in my life. I think it's the ESV, if you have an ESV that says, those who are being sanctified. This is a contrast, but a a true contrast, or maybe a clarification that the Spirit of God is doing. Positionally, God makes you holy. Positionally, God sets you apart. Positionally, you have that righteousness of Christ in your life. 
But the atonement, yes, the atonement does that. But the atonement of Christ is so powerful that even through regeneration and even through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, which he talks about in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 10, it begins to work in your life in such a way that you want to sin less. You remember Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For God is working in you. Both his will and his work. That's more in line with this idea of those who are being sanctified. Remember, out of all the churches and all the New Testament, it seems that one of the worst was the church at Corinth. Yet God calls them saints. At the same time, Paul challenges them in 2 Corinthians and says, examine yourself to be sure you are in the faith. Because he wants them to understand that if you're a Christian, yes, you are a saint. Every Christian is a saint. Every saint is a Christian. But eventually, to some degree, that's going to show up in your life. If you're a saint, there's going to be some type of sanctification that's going to show up. Verse 14, the end is saying that God perfects us through Christ, but he also works in us to separate us from sin. Even to this day. Now, that's just verse 14 in a nutshell. But now what the Spirit of God is going to do, and remember that these believers came from a Hebrew Hebrew background, and in verses 15 to 17, he's going to give Holy Spirit and Old Testament confirmation that what he is saying is, is true. Verse 15, note says, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. That is, the Holy Spirit witnesses to us. And he quotes from Jeremiah. So here, understand, verse 15 to 17, the Spirit of God is saying, look, all, all that I've just said is nothing new. It was taught in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit says this, but he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes in the book of Jeremiah. This, therefore, is proof of the inspiration of the book of Jeremiah. The Holy Spirit is saying this, and he's quoting the Old Testament. That is, the Old Testament is the book that the Holy Spirit wrote. And from Jeremiah, what does he talk about? He talks about the new covenant. And we've already seen this before. We've already looked at this earlier. He says, I'll put my laws on their heart and on their mind. I will write them. That is, there will be this internal ministry of the Holy Spirit and your heart of hearts, and the most deepest part of your mind, the Spirit of God is going to work, which will help you, which will energize you to be sanctified. God says here, verse 14, God perfects those, God has set apart those who are currently now seeing God work in their life. And this is an act of the Holy Spirit. And even the Old Testament says this, in the book of Jeremiah. That's how verses 14 and 15 and 16 are interacting together. 
Those who now are being separated from sin, that happens because God has given them, he's justified, he's given them that perfect righteousness of Christ. This is demonstrated by them becoming practically more righteous. That's by the work of the Holy Spirit that even the book of Jeremiah talks about. Because you're in a new covenant. So why would you want to go back into the Old Testament covenant, Old Testament system, which is not as powerful? That was anticipating what is to come. The fulfillment has happened. And that's even why you have verse 17. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. It wasn't that sin couldn't be forgiven in the Old Testament. Here the Spirit of God is saying, verse 17, verse 16, this part of the book of Jeremiah has been fulfilled. Why would you want to go back to what was promised when already the promise is not only here, the promise has already happened. This is the Holy Spirit testifying, really, of Christ. In John 16, Jesus talks about the purpose of the Holy Spirit in verses 8 to 11, and says the Holy Spirit exists to, to glorify Christ. And here, in a very similar fashion, the writer being led by the Spirit of God, is saying that the Spirit of God is even saying to you, Hebrew Christians, and also to you and I, the, the Spirit of God is testifying, don't forsake Christ. The best thing, the best person, the best system there is, is Jesus Christ. And nothing and no one else. Christ alone. And then verse 18, there is this Summary, now where there is forgiveness of these things, that is, sins and lawless deeds, lawless deeds is the idea of rebellion, sins is this idea of you know, missing the mark, and God says, I will put those behind my back, I won't remember them anymore, and Micah talks about stomping out sin, Isaiah says, again, he put it behind his back. Psalm talks about as far as the east is from the west. So that's why I say covering, cleaning, and crushing sin. And then verse 18 summarizes this. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Why is it? And I think this is true. At least it could be true with me. In my heart of hearts, there is at times when I sin, I'll go before God, I'll go before Christ, and I'll say, Lord, I've done this sin. It's wrong. Please forgive me. There's a good desire for repentance, but also there can be this almost desire to, Lord, what can I do to merit forgiveness? What can I do to, to, to earn forgiveness from you? What do you have to do to get God to forgive you? If you sin, what do you have to do to get God to forgive you? Believer, what do you have to do? Do you have to do ten Hail Marys, right? I read the the Catholic, Roman Catholic uh, rosary. Do you have to say ten to twelve Hail Marys and Holy Mother of God? What do you have to do? Read your Bible ten times. If you read ten, your Bible ten times, that's a type of offering, sacrifice to God. Will that forgive you? Maybe you need to give more money in the offering plate. Will that forgive you? 
Verse 18 is saying, no, none of those things will forgive you. There's been one great offering for sin for unto a perpetual of forevers, and that is the blood work, the cross work, the death work of Jesus Christ. So that forgiveness has been won by Jesus because he paid the price. He paid the debt. Therefore, then, this passage is saying, forgiveness is found in Christ alone. Never forsake him. Never desert him. Always pursue him by faith. Follow him. Press forward by faith in Jesus. Especially because of coming storms of faith in life. Always press forward in faith. Now, Based upon that, three applicational wrap-ups of this section, really of the whole book of Hebrews until now, but especially 9 to 10, 18. Number one application here. The efficient atonement should cause you to be a real eschatological nut. This efficient atonement of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, should cause you to be a real eschatological nut. Have you ever met an eschatological nutcase? Do you know what I mean when, when I say that? What I mean is that there are so many believers that can be so excited about a specific nuance or timing of eschatology more than the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return. There can be believers who are so anxious that they might miss the rapture that really they lose the the fact that the fear of death has been killed for us. I mean, if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, and it started early in the book of Hebrews, it says in chapter 2, verse 14, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to the slavery all their lives. Death, D-E, not death, D-E-A-T-H, death is part of eschatology. A major part of the end times is that everybody here, unless Jesus returns, will what? We're going to die. We're going to pass away. But there can be believers who are just enthralled with a curiosity of specific nuances about prophecy, and yet at the same time, they can be afraid of dying. But a true, in one sense, I'm being kind of tongue-in-cheek, a true eschatological nut won't be afraid of death. Why? It is finished. I am perfected in Christ. I have no merit to go to heaven, but Jesus has all the merit, and he died on the cross and took care of my sin. And so he frees me from being a slave to death. Oh yeah, there's... 
you know, some nuances here and there, and, and it's mysterious, but I'm not a slave to the fear of dying. My sin has been paid for. We see in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for men to die once, and then comes judgment. And even 9.28 talks about that Christ will return again. And even in verse 13, it says, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. Why is, you have 2, 14, and 15, you have 9, 27, and 28, you have Hebrews 10, verse 13. You have these passages right in the middle of verses about the atonement. You have verses about the return of Christ. Why is that? Because the Savior died. And John talked about this this morning. The the Jews were wanting what? They were wanting a physical kingdom to be established right now and right away. They were scandalized by the fact that the Messiah could be crucified and die. The thing is that there is there is a part of their reasoning was somewhat correct in the sense that the Messiah will win. The Messiah is king. The Messiah will conquer all of his enemies forever and forever. Their understanding, though, and, and their timing and their nuances were off. But there is a true sense in which the Messiah, the Son of God, isn't just that he died. If Jesus just died, then we would have no hope at all. But Jesus died and rose again, sits beside the Father on high, and he will return, and all of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. That means they will be utterly conquered forever. God wins and Jesus wins. There will be an end of history and Satan doesn't win. The Antichrist doesn't win. The false prophet doesn't win. Evil doesn't win. Death doesn't win. Disease doesn't win. Jesus has won, is winning, and will devastatingly win. That's what verse 13 in the eschatology of Hebrews is teaching. And all of this is based upon the fact that the worst that could ever happen to Jesus ended up being the best thing that could ever happen for humanity and for him. Because he's glorified from forever unto forever. My my brother, was it two weeks ago? You know, well, about two months ago, he had open heart surgery. And then about a week ago, he, he was having a hard time breathing and he fainted and went back into the hospital. And now he has these Different lung problems, all kinds of fluid in his lungs. And so I called him, we were talking to him, and we're pretty direct. I said, Jeff, are, are you afraid of dying? You know, I'm going to encourage you. I, I know you've trusted Jesus. You, you say you have. Don't be afraid of dying. That's where Christ is. And he said, Tom, I'm not afraid of dying at all. And I know if I die and I go to heaven, actually, I wouldn't want to come back. Because that's my home. But what I am afraid of is I'm afraid for my family. I'm only concerned for my family. And so that really encouraged my heart. That here is, he's a nurse. He knows the different problems he's having, he's had with his heart and with his lungs. But the fear of death in his life has been squashed. And it's certainly not because he's, in himself, a perfect person. But it's because of that atonement 
of Jesus Christ. So having gone through all of these different passages, having gone through all these sermons, we should come to the place to say that my hope and my trust is not that I'm going to be a better person. My hope is that Jesus Christ was the best there ever was. My hope is in what he did for me, and that is my peace and my hope and my security. Number two, trust that whatever sin you have committed or have had committed against you can be forgiven. Trust that whatever sin you've committed and whatever sin somebody's committed against you can be forgiven. Now, maybe you would say, yes, but what about the unpardonable sin? Well, the unpardonable sin is basically rejecting, and in a nutshell, the full revelation of Jesus Christ. That's saying, no, I will not believe the miracles and the words of the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God working through Christ. I see who Christ is. No! Well, that's unbelief. That's, that's rejection. If you reject Christ, certainly, yeah, you, you can't be saved. You have to receive Christ. Otherwise, there is no sin that you've committed that cannot be forgiven. That life and that work of Jesus Christ on the cross is so great, there was no sin so gross that cannot be forgiven. That's how powerful, how wonderful, how effective this cross work of Jesus Christ is. And it's not that God just takes your sin and sweeps it under the rug. No, it's nailed, as it says in the book of Colossians, your rebellion and your offenses, your mind, they're nailed to the cross of Christ. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, it is finished. So we, we praise God. There, there's no sin that cannot be forgiven. There's sins that you've done and I've done that I don't know and you don't know. Right? Right. God knows. And if you're in Christ, he forgives them. That's our, our hope. But not only that, we can forgive one another. And notice verse 18. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. Certainly, when somebody sins against me, I desire for them to repent. But I should not desire them to make a sacrifice. <laughs> Sometimes when somebody sins, especially if they sin against me, my temptation can be, I, I want them to almost, I wouldn't say it this way, but in my heart and my mind, I, I want them almost to make a sacrifice. To prove something. We have to be careful about that. Because the Bible says in Ephesians, forgive one another just as God and Christ forgave you, forgave me. Even the Lord's Prayer, right? I forgive those who have sinned against me. I forgive their debts. Matthew 18, if I have a hard time with forgiveness, I, I don't forgive others. That puts me in a very dangerous place with God. I can forgive anybody because my forgiveness of especially believers is not based upon how well they treat me or how well they treat their life. When I forgive, whether it's my wife, my kids, you, any believer, it's based upon the fact of what? God already forgave them. 
God already forgave them. And if it's not somebody that's saved, then I forgive them because forever and forever and forever and forever and forever, if they don't come to Christ, they will pay for that sin. Forever. Right? Every sin that's ever committed will be paid for. Either by Christ or in hell. Therefore, I can receive God's forgiveness. It's not about me forgiving myself. I receive, though, God's forgiveness through Christ. And then I can forgive others freely. And then finally, a third application. And we'll talk more about this next week, certainly. But a third application is prioritize worshiping Christ Jesus over his efficient and sufficient atonement for sinners. Prioritize worshiping Christ, especially over this cross work that he did for all those who believe on him. Now, as I said, next week there's four basic imperatives that will flow out of chapter 10, 19 to the end of the chapter. And the first one will be in verse 22, where it says, let us draw near. And it talks about worshiping. So we're going to get there next week. But to get a little bit ahead of ourselves, as we seek to apply all that we've just learned, we need, being consistent with verse 22, to be sure that we're prioritizing worshiping Christ because of what he's already done for us on the cross. That is, we give Christ worth. You are worthy. You are glorious. You, you, you are amazing. You're incredible because... You did this for me. And at one point, Romans 5 says, I was your enemy. And even when I was your enemy, you loved me and died for me. I give you the glory, Lord. So how, how, how do we prioritize worshiping Christ, especially over that he satisfied the wrath of God for my sin? Make time to read the word and, and pray. We've said this so many times. I th- we want to make Christianity so either so mysterious or, or so mechanical and you have to, you know, here's 10 steps, here's 20 steps. Read your Bible and pray. And then especially be reading those epistles on the New Testament and constantly be going over this cross work of Jesus Christ. Take a verse in your Bible, read it, read other versions, diagram it, write the verse out, memorize it, confess your sin based upon that verse, make an action plan to do what that verse says, and then worship the Lord according to that verse on what that verse has said. We build up our faith how? We build it on the blood work of Jesus Christ. But how do we do that? Well, faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of, Christ. So the way that you grow, read books like Romans and Colossians and Galatians and Hebrews and help, and, and pray, God, help me to understand your death on the cross for my sins, that I am perfected by you and all that that means and entails, Lord. Give me understanding. Now, I have this in my notes. I didn't know that Micah and his bride would be here this morning. I didn't know that they'd be here specifically this day. However, this was already in my in my notes. When I was in India, one of the things I would love to eat would be a pond. Pond. 
And it's basically a leaf, and it can have coconut and other sweet spices. Some can have tobacco. I did not eat the tobacco pond. Okay? But you can get, it's like a leaf with coconut and sweet and rose, all kinds of stuff in this little leaf, like a, maybe two or three leaves. And you stick the pond in your mouth. And at first, I would just go like this and eat it quickly. And then my Indian friends would be like, Are, don't do that. You're going to miss the, the flavor of it. And it's really to help your digestion after you eat a spicy meal. So you take the pond and you stick it in your mouth. My friends from Grace Community Church would come and sometimes they hated doing this. But it's really sweet. You take the pond, you stick it back here in your cheek, get sweet pond, stick it right back here, and you chew it not fast, but you chew it how? Slowly. And if you chew it slow, it tastes so good. Mm. Can you taste that right now? It can almost taste like bubble gum. Like bubble is just bubble gum. No, you don't like it. But it's all natural. Oh, and it would taste so good. That's what you need to do with the Bible. That's how you meditate. That's even what it says in Psalm chapter 1. When it says meditate, it's the idea of a cow chewing his curd. It's the idea that you take the biblical truth, what we've just learned, or elsewhere in the Bible, about Christ. You can take Romans 5.8, for God demonstrates his own love toward us, but yet we're sinners. Christ died for us. You take that, and you memorize it, and then you chew on it. What are its implications? What does that mean in my life? What does that mean for my family, for my neighbors? And you just chew on it. That's how you prioritize worshiping Christ over his atonement. It's not just you read, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Amen. Thank you, Lord. That's not a quiet time. <laughs> That's like rubbing your, your rabbit's foot. That's having a lucky charm. No, no. Jesus is real. God is real. The Bible is real. So spend time thinking and praying and digest the truth slowly. And you will see, as it says in verse 15, you'll see the Holy Spirit working and even moving and energizing your spiritual life. There are many things to build your faith on. What are you building your faith on? Are you building your faith on cardboard? That is, again, there's many human mechanisms, many human inventions, many human philosophies to help you move forward in life through difficult times. That which is most stable, that which is most perfect, that which is the best there is, is that atonement of Jesus Christ. Trusting Him for your sins and for all things in life. Build your faith upon the blood work of Jesus Christ. And then you will always will go forward in faith. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you died for us, that the Father sent you and loves us and the Holy Spirit even works with inside of us that the whole triune God is involved in our salvation and even in our sanctification. Lord, help us to worship you over what you've done for us and to digest it into our, the very depths of our beings. Help us, Lord, to receive your forgiveness and forgive one another. 
And Lord, we pray also that we would have a true eschatology, not that we wouldn't study eschatology, but that we would be most preoccupied with your return so that we and our prayers would pray, even today, return, Lord Jesus, that you might be glorified in us and in the world. Lord, we give you the glory for Christ's sake. Amen.